welcome everyone and uh, thank you so much for, for being here, whether you are uh, rejoining us after our hiatus or whether you are here for the first time. We are very excited to be starting back up again with our uh, spring classes for Drisha as a whole. This is the first class of our our spring term and also uh, very excited to be starting up again with uh, this particular class. Uh, your name will be great, the Avraham Narrative with, uh, with Rabbi David Silber. Uh, Rabbi Silber is the founder and dean of Drisha. He has been teaching at this institution and many others for over 40 years on Tanakh, Gemara, and any number of different topics. Uh, he's the author of two different books, uh, as, as well as a number of different articles, podcasts, and, and many other things are available on our website. Uh, for those of you who are here in the fall, we were privileged to start learning the Avram narrative together and to work through the first few chapters, and we will be continuing this spring through the remainder of that narrative. As I said, this is the first class in our spring term. We've got a number of other classes going as well. We've got a 11 different classes that are offered between now and March. Uh, those include this and Rabbi Silver's other Tanakh class on King Solomon and his demons, which we'll be touching both on stories from the Tanakh and stories about uh, King Solomon in the Talmud. Uh, the other nine classes are predominantly focused on the theme of halacha, what it is, how it works, uh, and there's information on all of those classes on our website at drisha.org slash classes if you want to explore more learning with us this semester. Uh, with that, Rabbi Silber, I'm going to turn it over to you. Okay, then. Um, all right, so let us uh, begin. And um, for those who are continuing great, for those who are here starting off, it's also good because it's a really a new topic. Um, everything is connected, of course, as we know. So let me just say where we're beginning from. Chapter 16 is uh, another step in the larger Abraham narrative. Chapter 15 is a very critical chapter in general because that's the chapter in which uh, the covenant, the bridge between God on one hand and Abraham's descendants or some of them on the other is formulated. It's known in the Torah and our tradition is Brit Ben Habatarim. And it's a covenant which involves for Abraham both a promise that he will have a, a biological descendant from whom will descend uh, his, uh, his uh, lineage, his line, who that's number one. So he was at present, he has no children. And second of all, and primarily, it's a covenant about a particular piece of land which the Torah uh, lays out at the end of chapter 15, which lands presently inhabited by other powers uh, will be in fact uh, one day possessed by Avram's descendants. So that's the covenant. And covenant means two-sided agreement. So Avraham in chapter 15, after he's told about all this, that God will in fact He'll have a child and there will be descendants and possession of land. And Avram has a question in chapter 15, Bama means, I think, not just how do I know what's going to happen, 
it's not primarily, in my view, an expression of doubt. Uh, people have doubts, that's not a problem. But in this particular case, the Torah emphasized that he doesn't really have doubts about God's ability to fulfill God's promises because the Torah said in chapter 15, in verse number 6, Behemin Bashem, he had faith, he believed, he put his trust in God. Torah says that explicitly. So we have to presume that he, he, trusts, he trusts that God's promise can be true. So that's not his question. His question in verse number 8 of chapter 15, is not so much how do I know, but means through what? through which shall I know? That is to say, that is to say, what is, the, what is required on my part? What is my commitment to ensure that this promise will in fact come true? And God's response, just to review what we did, this is important as we move forward, God's response is first of all to take a set of animals. That's number one. Three sets of animals. Three sets of animals, which Avram takes, and he cuts them in two pieces, and places them facing each other. And in addition to that, he's told to take two birds, and the birds he does not cut. So he has two birds, and he has these three animals that are cut in pieces. And this will be the pathway, between them is the pathway through which a fire will pass. That's found at the end of chapter 15. Tanur Ashan Vlapidesh in verse number 17. As the sun was setting and the darkness, Awatahaya, Bine Tanur Ashan Vlapidesh, Asher Avar, Beinag Zarima Ela. So between the uh, pieces that have been cut, the pieces, a fire passes through, and presumably the fire represents God. So God is passing through, walking through the pieces, was apparently in the ancient uh, uh, Near East, uh, it was a way of, of performing a covenantal act. So that's what Avram is to take. And in addition to what Avram is to take, God speaks. To Avram's questions of Bama Eda, there is a divine response in chapter 15 of Yodoa Teda. In verse number 13, Vayomer, we have Ram Yodoa Teda. You shall certainly know. So the Yodoa Teda is a response to Bamaida. And what shall you certainly know? What you shall certainly know is, Your descendants will be Ger, strangers, in the land not theirs. Vavadum. They will be enslaved. They will be abused for 400 years. Then God adds, the nation that enslaves them, I will judge, punish or judge. They will leave with great wealth, with many possessions, with rechush. And then God says to Avram, you will die in ripe old age. And then in verse number 16, the fourth generation shall return to the land. 
for the sin of the Emori is not complete until then. So there are many interesting questions one can ask about this text, which is a pivotal text of the Bible. One question one can ask, for example, is how does 400 years line up with four generations? Because presumably four generations is a lot less than 400 years, given the fact that generations overlap. So how do you get 400 years at the same time, four generations? That's not a problem I'm gonna discuss now. That's a question that emerges. But the question that we dealt with in the last session, and I wanna start from this, is what is the relationship between what Avram is told to take on one hand and the covenant on the other? What in fact is the commitment that is being made over here? for those who wish to enter into the covenant. And the commitment as the Torah, as God spells it out, seems to be a threefold commitment. And the Torah says it very clearly, that your descendants will be strangers, gerim. A ger is someone who lives in someone else's space. So that's number one. Number two, there'll be slavery. These people will be enslaved. And number three, the Inuotam, they will be abused. Inui is abuse. So these are the three terms. Those who are subjected, the, the commitment, which is a terrible commitment to make, awesome commitment, of Geirut, Abdut, and Inui, that is the commitment. In return for which, there is the possession of the land, but the point I emphasized at the very end of the last session, which is the introduction to this session, this is a very important point, is that the commitment is actually much greater than that. Because what is implicit in the covenant, as the Torah describes it, is that the people who suffer, the Gerut, the Avdut, and the Inui, the threefold suffering, those same people, and that those the threefold suffering is presumably represented in the text by the three different animals. Notice how the Torah has not only three animals, but emphasizes that each one is mishuleshet, probably means three years old. Take three animals that are three years old, and they represent the three generations of suffering because only the fourth generation shall return to the land. And we notice that the three generations, the three animals are cut in pieces. In fact, not only are they cut in pieces, but in, in it says furthermore that birds of, in verse number 11, that birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Avram drove them away. So they, the animals are cut in pieces, which represents the suffering. They're almost completely destroyed. It's only through Avram's uh, uh, actions that the carcasses are Caucasus, otherwise they'd be utterly devoured by birds of prey. So the generations, the three generations that suffer, the threefold suffering of Gerut, Abdut, and Inui, as represented by the three animals that are three years old, so they're represented by the animals cut in pieces. But the fourth generation, they're represented by the birds. And the Torah says in verse number 10, the birds were not cut. That means the birds, if we take this further, the birds presumably are not going to suffer. 
the suffering is endured by the first three generations. The return to the land, the fourth generation does not suffer. Those that suffer do not see the redemption. Those who see the redemption do not suffer. The covenant consists of a connection between both. So if you, for example, are a third generation Jew, in, in, in terms of this covenant, you are suffering. Let us presume that you know, that you enter in the co- into the covenant knowingly, then you know that you will suffer, but you actually will never see the fruits of your suffering. The next generation, you set it up for the future, but you yourself will not see the, uh, the blessing. So the point is, um, the point is that most people would not be willing, I think, to enter into such a covenant. I would say, even if you saw the fruits of the, of the suffering, probably most people would not be so willing to enter into it. It's terrible suffering. But especially since, since you are not going to actually reap the, 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 the rewards in any direct way. So this is the nature of the covenant. The three animals, of course, are mentioned in verse number nine. A heifer, a goat, and a ram. The first of them, of course, is the egla, which is interesting in its own right, but I can't get into that now. But this is the nature of this covenantal agreement. And we understand why the Torah says that, it, that as this is taking place, that we are told that a deep and dark dread, in verse number 12, that a deep and dark dread fall, fell upon Avram. Because it is a truly frightening, it's a frightening uh, thought that this is the commitment, it's, it's, a, it's an unbelievable commitment that is made for those who wish to enter into this covenant. It's not clear that all of Avram's descendants will enter into the covenant, and in fact, in this book, Book of Breshit, not all the descendants enter into the covenant, as we shall see. But those who do enter into the covenant, this is the price that you pay. Okay, this is what chapter 15 is all about. And then, of course, the Torah listed the various nations that someday Abram's descendants will possess. And now the question is, chapter 15 it is not just floating in the air. Chapter 15, it follows chapter 14 and chapter 13 and chapter 12, which we studied together, many of us. And the point over here, what I want to emphasize about this covenantal agreement is that, and what is, this is a sort of summary of what we studied the last set of sessions. And that is that if we think about the fulfillment of this covenant, because the Torah is very not clear about when this will be fulfilled. It talks about four generations. It doesn't say exactly when we start counting the generations, okay? But the point is, if you think about Avram's own life, the two stories that precede chapter 15 essentially are this. The first story is that Avram is directed to go into the land, Lechucha, and shortly thereafter, he goes down to Mitzrayim. He goes down to Egypt, where uh, he goes there Lagur, to be a temporary re- resident there. He's a Ger. But there, Sarah is 
captured, is taken without consent, taken by Paro. We don't know for how long. We know that God brings plagues upon Pharaoh and then he releases her. We can surmise from the text that it's not a very short period of time that she's held against her will captive and presumably uh, is a sexual victim of, of Paro, which the Torah describes elsewhere as Inui. Inui often has a sexual meaning. She's held against her will. So essentially, that's the first story at the descent into Egypt, which foreshadows the Exodus story, of course. And then in the previous chapter, chapter 14, which has all kinds of linguistic links to chapter 15, that's the story about Avram's defeat of the four kings. And as we, we studied it, it's the symbolic conquest of the land of Canaan. So essentially, if you think about the last two stories that precede chapter 15, they are essentially about descent into Egypt, Mitzrayim, and then the conquest of the land, Kibush Haaretz. That's what's happened essentially in the previous two stories. So chapter 15, the covenant, is based upon Avram's own experience. When I say Avram's experience, I should amend that to say based on Abraham and Sarah's experience. Because the truth of the matter is that the Geirut, the Avdet, and the Inui, those three terms, though they are not found in chapter 12 when Sarah is taken, but it's fair to say that they are a recasting of Sarah's experience uh, in chapter 15 in, a, in, in covenantal language. But fundamentally, the person who undergoes the Geirut, the Avdut, and the Inui is none other than Sarah. Abraham did not undergo the Geirut, the Avdut, and the Inui. He underwent the Geirut. And he, he also got the Rechush Gadol from Pharaoh. That's true. But in terms of the actual suffering, it was Sarah. So we have the, in other words, what does it mean to be covenantal? One could say it would be those who choose to be covenantal who choose this path, are walking in the path of uh, Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah's experience has been reformulated in chapter 15 as Geirut, Avdut, and Inui. And this is, the, this is where we are right now in the story. We have a covenant. It's not clear at all, and maybe we'll see more of this later when you start counting the generations. We discussed that a bit. But this is where we stand now as we begin our study in chapter 16. So before, I, before we now begin on our little journey together, does anybody have any comments or questions? Can I say something, Rabbi Silva? Go ahead. I know your um, concept that Brit is something mutual. Yes, it is. But here we don't have a sense of uh, agreement or of choice from the human side. It's, well, it's as if we are, that's the Brit. I mean, take it or leave it, or I don't know how to express it. It's well, not, first of all, when I said it's mutual. It's not a scam, you know, it's not an agreement. Well, yeah, so I think you can read in, but Avram says, tell me what is required. So I uh -huh. presume that, Vehemin Bashem, I trust you, tell me what is, what I need, what, what has to happen for this to take place. When I meant that it's mutual, well, I meant two things. 
I was really emphasizing more because others have said otherwise that a covenant means a two-sided commitment. There's, there's the agreement piece, which is, which is true. There's also the commitment. In other words, there's a commitment. When you make a, an agreement with somebody else, a covenantal agreement, each side is committing to something. It's not that one side gives, you, gives everything and the other side receives. It's not that one is giving and one is receiving. I don't believe that's a covenant. I think every single covenant involves some kind of commitment. It's true of this covenant. It's true of the Shnei Tabrit, the covenant of Sinai, in which God says you'll be a holy people, and the commitment are these commandments. There are all kinds of all kinds of commitments. The blood of the covenant we have at the covenant of Sinai, because the uh, the, co- the demands are extreme, and the demands here are extreme. I, I mean, some people think this covenant is a one-sided agreement, but it's not one-sided because the commitment is, is awesome. As I explained, to be a stranger, to be enslaved and oppressed, abused, and knowing, furthermore, that the return to the land is not your generation. It's the fourth generation shall return to the land. The Torah gives a reason. The, the, the Amorites had a case throughout the Amorites yet. We'll get to that. But that's my point about, that's the key point I was making. In terms of agreeing to it, I think you can read an agreement in terms of what Avram says. Tell me what is okay. Tell me what, tell me what, what has to happen. And God spells it out. And there's a deep and dark dread because it's a frightening agreement. But this is the basic agreement. And this is, this should be kept in mind at all points in the in, in the in the in the Bible, and especially in Breshit, because you know this is this covenantal agreement is what's going to be passed down from generation to generation. So it's only a person who actually is willing to forsake uh, the future and live, and, and in other words, what am I say forsake the present? Actually, to give up the present because you're not going to see the rewards. You're building for somebody else. Most people don't want to do that. So always someone who's willing to do that can be truly confidential. If you want to live in, 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 in the moment, which I'm not criticizing, but then you can't be, then this covenant is not for you. There may be other blessings, but it's not this blessing. So that's what's at stake in this book. And the way this covenant is, covenantal blessing, is transmitted over time is the core question in the book of Genesis. This is the core question. How is this blessing to be transmitted? Because at every turn, there are problems with transmission. So that's where we stand right now. And now let us begin our journey together, beginning with chapter 16. Rashid, Perik, Zion. Anybody has questions, just unmute yourself. But meanwhile, let's let's start. Chapter 16 begins this way. I have a question, Rabbi. Wendy Baker. Yes? Go ahead. Uh, when you speak of the third and the fourth generation, where does the generation that left Egypt as adults count? Are they the third? Because they don't reach. The generation that leaves Egypt is the first. But I'll, I'll get to that okay. later. Okay. The so Torah the- has, the, the fulfillment of this covenant takes place two different times in the, in the, in the Torah. Mm-hmm. It takes place in Genesis on the level of family. And it takes place beginning in the book of Exodus on the level of nation. The generation, since you asked the question, I'll just answer this question about this, and I want to leave the rest for later, because it's a very important question. The point is that the Chumash actually tells us straight out 
about the generation in Egypt. Because the Torah says in the beginning of the book of Exodus, the very beginning, the Torah says that Joseph died. By Yabat Yosef, V'chol Echav, V'chol Hadarahu. Joseph and his brothers and that generation died. The Torah goes out of its way to say that generation died. Because then the Torah then says that a new Pharaoh emerged after Joseph's death, who didn't know Joseph. And the persecution of the Jews begins with that Pharaoh. It emerges after Joseph and his brothers and the generation died. So the first generation of suffering is the generation after the brothers died. The Torah then later, a few chapters later, traces out the generations. Let's say the tribe of Levi. Levi died. Levi's son is Kahat. Kahat's son is Amram. Amram is second generation. And Amram has two sons, Moses and Aaron. So Moshe is third generation. So Moshe's people are third generation. And we, the reader, know something that Moses doesn't know. We're smarter than Moses. Moses doesn't know something that we know from the very beginning of the book. He's going nowhere. His generation is not going to make it, the Torah said. The fourth generation shall return to the land. The ones who will enter the land are not the ones who leave Egypt. Because they're third generation, actually. They're third generation. So they're not going anyplace. So the ones who are going to enter the land are the next generation. And it's going to take time. And of course, we can write it ourselves. We know that those who enter the land, the beginning of the conquest of the land of Canaan, which starts in the Torah and is completed in the book of Yehoshua, the first conquest and significant conquest, the first taking of Canaanite land in the Torah before we cross the Jordan is of course the pivotal battle of Sichon, Sichon and Og, and who was Sichon if not? Sichon, Melech and Mori. Of course, we could write it ourselves. That's exactly what the Torah said. You defeat the Amori that begins the conquest of the land. Notice that the generic term for Canaanites in the covenantal language is Amori. It's very striking. Not Canaanite, but Amori. And later the Torah says, this is when it begins. The battle of Sichon begins the conquest of the land. But this is a longer conversation, but that's a very important point. So yes, there is a fulfillment of the covenant with the exodus from Egypt, which is third generation. It's very important to understand that. Because unless you understand that, you can't understand the little ritual that the Jewish people have. It's called the Seder. The entire Seder is based on this premise. The entire Seder is based on the premise that the events of Passover night and not just a kind of historical event. History is very, I would say, almost irrelevant. But the Passover night celebrates the covenant. It's a clinching of the covenant between God and the Jewish people, which is the beginning of Jewish history. It's a fulfillment of a prior promise. The whole Haggadah screams this out to us. In any event, that is one of the fulfillments of the covenant, but not the only one. There is also a fulfillment of the covenant on the level of family in the book of Genesis. And we'll get to that. Now let's begin chapter 16. Now let's get back to Abraham. Meanwhile, he has no, none of his own biological children. He had complained about this in the beginning of chapter 15, when God said to Abraham in 15, 
don't be afraid. Altira Avram, I'm your shield. Anochim Magenlach, Sicharcha Harbe Meod, your reward is very great. And Avram says to God, Hashem Elokim Matitainli, what could you give me? I go childless, I have no successor, he's not a young man. And the master of my household, Ben Meshek Ti, who Damesek Eliezer. So Abraham had turned to God and said, Listen, you made me promises, I'm going to build the empire, but I'm not a youngster. Who's going to take over? Who's going to run the show? Don't worry, you have a child, etc. Now we get to chapter 16. But Sarah, his wife, she had no children. But she had an Egyptian slave, slave woman. Shifcha is a slave woman. And Evid is a man. Ushma Hagar, her name was Hagar. So let's just stop here for a moment at this uh, particular verse. Because what the Torah often does is it gives you, for every story needs information. You can't tell a story without information. But it does more than give information. So this first verse is very interesting. Sarah, Abraham's wife, Eshet Avram, the Torah emphasizes she's his wife, has not born children for him, but she has a shivcha mitzvah. She has a slave woman. So this woman is a slave. This, her name is Hagar. Now, of course, we all know that the names are not just names. The names are descriptions. And the name, Hey Gimel Reish, Hagar, in the unvocalized Hebrew, can equally be read, not Hagar, but Hagar, the stranger. She, in fact, of course, is a stranger because she's Egyptian and she's in the land of Canaan. Not only is she a Gare, but she's a slave. She is the female counterpart of Evan. Now, given the fact that in the previous chapter, there are three preconditions for covenantal connection. One is, Know very well, Abraham, that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs. They'll be enslaved and they will uh, be abused. He knew all time. And now we get to verse number one and we have a perfect covenantal candidate over here. She's only missing one thing. She has the slavery piece and she's got the stranger piece. All we need is a little torture and she'll be a perfect candidate. All we need is the Inuit. And of course, the reader knows from verse number one, we suspect that we will find Inui in chapter 16. That's what we expect to find, and we will not be disappointed. There will be Inui. This is how the story begins. So I give it, it's a perfect example of a verse that seems completely innocent. It's just a piece of information. But of course, when you read 16 in light of 15, it's not just a piece of information. Is setting up Hagar as potentially the one who could be covenantal. Okay, that's verse number one. I would add to this something else about Sarah that is clear, but I want to emphasize it over here. And that is that when Abraham prayed for a child in chapter 15, when God said, Abraham, don't worry, I'm going to protect you, and Abraham says, your reward is very great. And Avram said, God, what you give me, I am going childless. Abraham did not say, we are going childless. 
Abraham said, I am going childless. So Abraham, when he turns to God for help, in effect, he says it again in the next verse. He doesn't say, for example, something that his son Yitzhak might have said. Yitzhak prays to God for Rebekah in a similar situation. Abraham prays to God for Abraham. That's a very striking point. Abraham isn't praying for Sarah. That is to say, it would appear that he doesn't see Sarah as necessarily part of the promise. What will you give me? You haven't given me, not us. And we can understand it in light of this verse, what we were told earlier, she has no children. Um, so, and he said that she's my sister. Okay, he's lying in chapter 12, but the question is when we tell lies, do we be believe our own lies or not? In chapter 12, you can't tell. But later on, we suspect he actually believes this. It's not just a lie. She really is my sister, because that's primarily how he sees her. This is all background to chapter 16. Now we have the next verse. But Thomas Sarai El Avram. He ne na atzorani Hashem biledet, bono shifchati ulai ibonemi mena. Vayishma Avram lukol Sarai. So Sarai said to Avram, her name at this point, and his name is Avram, she's Sarai. The names are not changed till chapter 17. Look here, she says, Hinena, look here. Please look here, Hinena. Atzarani, God has prevented me from giving birth, kept me from giving birth. So she has a request. Bono el shifchati ulai ibane mimena. What is the request? Go, come unto my shifcha. So she offers her shifcha to Avram as a kind of wife. She's not just a slave. She'd be given to Avram as a wife. The purpose of which is perhaps I will literally to be built up through her. So is an interesting word over here. What does Sarah have in mind? So I see the translation that this particular translation is perhaps I shall have a son through her. Literally, that's not what the word Ibane means. It means I'll be built up through her. But the idea of it presumably is correct. That is to say, what Sarah is thinking is this woman will be the biological mother, kind of surrogate motherhood, but this child will be my child. So I will take the child, I'll see the child as mine. But, but biologically, this woman will be the birth mother. She'll give birth to the child. But hyper, hyper literally, certainly Ibanez does connote son, Ben. The word Ibanez is built from Ben. That's maybe true. Hyper, hyper, hyper literally, that is true. But, but non hyper literally, the, the two are connected, obviously. I'm not suggesting, I'm, on the contrary, I'm agreeing with you, actually that Ibanea carries with it both meanings. But my point is that I put it in terms of surrogate motherhood. There's a biological mother, but the cell will be considered to be the mother of the child. And I'll give you an example where this actually works. This experiment will fail, actually. Why it fails is, our, is part of our study, but it, it will fail. But I'll give, me, give you an example where it doesn't fail. It doesn't fail later in this book when it comes to Rachel. Because Rachel says, Rachel says to Yaakov, Hine amati bilha bo'eleha, right? 
And she says, And I will be built up through her in chapter 30. I'll be built the same language. And there, Rachel gave her shifcha uh, to Yaakov. And she has a child. The first child, she has two children, but the first one is named Don. And when Bilhah gives birth to Don, Rachel speaks. Rachel says it explicitly. God has judged me. God has heard my voice. God has given me a son. Given me a son. So Rachel says it clearly. I consider this child to be my son. Now the child is actually Bilhah's son. And in the Torah, the Torah calls Bilhah's children her children. On the other hand, the Chumash wants to make the point, they are Bilhah's children, but they're also Rachel's children. And in point of fact, as many have noted, when Jacob blessed his 12 sons, he didn't give them all the same blessing, but he doesn't seem to discriminate based on Bilhah's sons versus uh, the other children. In fact, the blessing of Don, Don Yadina Mok Yachad Shiftei Yisrael, Jacob makes it clear, Don will avenge or judge his people like one of the tribes of Israel. As the Ramban points out, like one of the tribes of Israel, no less than any other tribe. We don't say he's a second-class citizen, is done because he's Bilhah's child. Because in point of fact, he's actually also Rachel's child. He's Rachel's child, and that's that's the experiment that works. So I, I mentioned that here for a different reason, which is for us to consider as we study, why is it that when it comes to Rachel, and her decision to have give her shifcha to Yaakov, Ibanet, to be built up or to have a son through this woman. And that seems to work very well. Whereas when it comes to Sarah's idea, and she was the first to have the idea, it doesn't work. It will fail. This child that's going to be born to Hagar at the end of the day is not Sarah's child. So we have to think about that as we study. Why does it fail? I should also take note of the fact in verse number two that when Sarah approaches Avram here in verse number two, and she starts saying, He Hashem she initiates the conversation, which she hasn't done to this point. But the first conversation between Abraham and Sarah back in chapter 12, initiated by Avraham, also began with the same words. He says to Sarah, He Yodati. So that the first conversation of Abraham initiating speaking to Sarah begins with Hinena. And the first time Sarah speaks to Abraham, it's another Hinena. And perhaps the Torah wants to, another way the Torah perhaps is reminding us of the background to chapter 16. The background to chapter 16 is chapter 12. When Abraham said to Sarah, Hinena Yadati, say you're my sister. And they go down to Egypt, and she's taken by Pharaoh, and Abraham leaves with a lot of gifts. He's given a lot of gifts. For the, during the courtship of Sarah, he's given gifts. And amongst the gifts he was given back in chapter 12, we all remember were all kinds of animals. Avadim ushfachot, male and female slaves. We have to assume that Hagar, the stranger, Let's call her the stranger. Hagar was one of the gifts given to Abraham uh, 
in a chapter in a story in which Sarah is taken. And that's a very important uh, fact we have to keep in mind. And the Torah, perhaps the Hine Nod Sarani, is another literary link back to chapter 12. Things happen in the past, we may want to forget them, often we do, but they're hard to erase because they, they still exist. And the background to the story over here is the story of Sarah being taken by Pharaoh when Abraham chooses to go down to Egypt in time of famine. And in doing so, puts Sarah in a, a great risk. Whatever his intention was, his intention was not that she be taken. I'm quite certain of that. But on the other hand, she was taken. And he set it up. And he got rewarded for it too. He got the shvachot. And now in verse 2, Bono And what does the Torah say? Avram heeded Sarah's request. Sarah's literally her voice. Avram hears, Vayishma is to hear. But the word of Shemoah has multiple meanings in the Bible. One is to hear, one is to perceive, one is to accept. The, the Shema that we recite twice daily, the Mishnah calls the Shema Kabbalat Omachut Shamayim, the acceptance of the heavenly kingdom. It's not the hearing, it may be the understanding, it's certainly the acceptance. So Avram accepts it. Yes, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do what you wish. By Yishma Avram Sarai, which doesn't require an enormous sacrifice on Abraham's part, but he he obeys Sarah. By Yishma Avram Sarai, it's interesting that, and maybe we'll come back to this, that this idea that Avram heard or listened to uh, to to um, uh, listen to. Um, to Sarah's voice, that expression reminds us of a phrase we found earlier in the Torah, namely in the story of the Garden of Eden, where God says to Adam, Ki because you listened to the voice of your wife and you ate of the forbidden fruit, so there's going to be all kinds of uh, consequences, negative consequences to that act. So to listen to the wife, Adam listening to the voice of Eve, to his wife is negative. But over here, it's not necessarily the case that Vayishma from Mekol Sarai is negative, quite the opposite. It's a very magnanimous gesture on Sarah's part. Yes, there's also her own needs for sure, but there's also Avram's needs, right? Because Avram also needs a child, and this is a way to satisfy Sarah, but also to allow Avram to have his own child. So one might say it's a magnanimous gesture on Sarah's part, but we do take note of the fact that the phrase, the verse, the four words by Ishma Avram Sarai is um, uh, reminds us of the story of, of Eve. So let's continue now. But let's let's bear that in mind about about the story of Adam and Eve in light of Abraham and Sarah. Fine. Now we have verse number three. Batikach Sarai eshet Avram et hagar hamitzvit shivchata mikates eser shanim 
Mushevet Avram Biyaretz Kenan, Batitein Otawi Avram Isha, Loga Isha. So, since Abraham agrees, Sarah took Hagar the Egyptian, her, uh, her slave, right? And they translate her maid. After 10 years, we can't shave Esther Shanim, we shave it that Rambi Eretz Kanan, so they're 10 years. They waited 10 years, no child. So she felt it's not going to happen. But the Taylor told we have Rambi Isha. She gave, gave this uh, woman she, her gift. She gives to Avram, her husband, Isha, her Ish, Lowly Isha, as a wife. So the status of Hagar has been elevated from Shifcha. Here she's called a uh, Isha as a wife. So there's a difference. Even within their, their different stadai, if that's the right word, there's a Shifcha. In the Torah, the Torah discriminates the lady between a Shifcha on one hand and the Amma on the other. A Shifcha is a slave, but an Amma sounds like he started as a slave, but becomes a kind of wife as well. So the status of Hagar has been raised. She's no longer just a shifcha. She may still be a shifcha of Sarah, but she's an, but she's an Isha of, of Avra. And now the Torah says, Vayavoa Hagar Vatar. He came unto Hagar, he slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Vatera ki harata, vatekal so it sounds like it happens right away. Abraham and Sarah are married for many years, 10 years in the land of Canaan, they were married before that. We're told already in chapter 11 that she has no children, so who knows how long they've been married. Um, but uh, as far as Hagar is concerned, you know, it's, uh, it's immediate. And as soon as she sees she's pregnant, her mistress was, they translated lowered in her esteem, from the word kal, which means light. Her mistress was literally light, light in her eyes. Now, before we get to Sarah's response, which is very sharp, I did want to make a point that lately I've been getting, for whatever reason, people... Uh, I'm in this, apparently in this group that uh, gets a lot of uh, academic articles. So when you're in the group, you get them, when you sign on to one kind of article, either Google or I think Google owns it, or Google or Facebook, one of them, and they, they know you from what you ask for. So they send you millions of articles which are similar. Any more about you than anything else, Facebook and Google, whatever it is. I think it's Facebook in this case. In any event, um, so I've been getting a lot of articles about Sarah. And about, uh, so in one of the articles, it talks about the Medrash, Medrash Rabbah and Breshit, how they view Sarah in contrast to what the Torah says about Sarah, etc. Touch upon some of these things. But one of the points, uh, the writer, I forget who it was, talks about the Sarah in the Torah as being very petty. And I want to take exception to that, that, uh, that, that description of Sarah. I don't think her response is very sharp, and I think it can be criticized, but it's not petty. Because you're talking about someone who puts another woman, gives another woman to her husband. And, and then as soon as this other woman becomes pregnant, which happens right away, her own esteem, she is lowered in the esteem of, the, of, this, of this other woman. 
And here, the important point, I think, is Sarah's response, Sarah's anger, which is extreme. And that's expressed in the next verse. And that's what Thomas Sarai al-Avram Chamasi Olecha. Sarah said to Avram, Chamasi Olecha. Here they translate in the English, the wrong done me is your fault. Now that's a translation which I don't think captures fully the important word over here, which is Hamas. Chet Mem Samech. Hamas is more than just a wrong. The Torah said back in the story of Noah that God has decided to destroy the world. The world is filled with Hamas and therefore the world is destroyed. It's not a wrong. It's not a slight. Hamas means wickedness. Hamas is a powerful term. It's the reason the entire God's creation is undone. Sarah said to Avram, the wickedness is on you. Wickedness, not a wrong. Wickedness, Rishut, is on you. After all, she says, Anochi natati shifrati I put this, this uh, slave, I gave you the slave. I did it. Vatera Kiharata, when she saw she was pregnant for a Kalbi Enela, I became light of no worth in her eyes. Yishpot Hashem Beinil Beinecha, those are fighting words. May God judge between me and you. Yishpot Hashem Beinil Beinecha, may the judge, may the heavenly judge judge between us. She doesn't mention, she's not in this verse blaming Hagar. She has no love for Hagar. But it's not directed, the critique is not directed against Hagar. It's directed against him with fighting words. First of all, Hamas, wickedness. You wicked man, or the wickedness is on you. And may God judge between us. I mean, that's very powerful. That's what Yiftoch says to the king of Ammon before he goes to war. You have a claim, I have a counterclaim. God will be the judge, and then there's a war. So these are fighting words. And the question is, how do we account for this? It does seem like an overreaction. Should we say she's being petty over here? And I don't think so. Because the key over here to understanding these verses is that chapter 16 is connected to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is about Avram going down to Mitzrayim. And the Torah gives the reason why he went to Mitzrayim. Ki kaveid hara'av ba'aretz. The famine was heavy. And when Abraham leaves Egypt in chapter 13, the Torah says, V'yavraham kaveid ba'od. He was very heavy. Ba'bikneh ba'kesef u'vazahav. With cattle and with gold and with silver. So Abraham went down to Mitzrayim. He kaveid harav because the famine was heavy, but he ends up kaveid. He ends up with a lot of wealth. He went down to Mitzrayim. He got a lot of wealth. He chose to go down there. He got the gifts. But meanwhile, there was a sacrifice somebody had to make for this to happen, and it wasn't Abraham. It was Sarah. So the point is that in chapter 12, the Torah emphasizes how heavy Abraham is. Avram kaveid ma'od, that is heavy with, with wealth, gold and silver. 
But Sarah has to be redeemed by God. God intervenes and saves her from Pharaoh. And who knows how long she's there. The reader can infer from a later story that, she, that, Abraham, that it wasn't that Pharaoh didn't touch Sarah. Because later in chapter 20 with Avimelech, God says, God says, uh, don't, do not go near this woman. Don't touch her. And he didn't. And by input, by inference, by implication, in chapter 12, he does go near her maybe many times. So the point is that in chapter 12, there is the, one might say, the trade-off. Not that it was necessarily his intention to do that. I'm not saying that. But at the end of the day, he chooses to go to Egypt, as we discussed. It's not her decision. In fact, he's already, before he says, please say you're my sister, he's already, he grieved. He already decided to go there before he speaks to her. So from her perspective, my husband put me in a terrible situation where I was treated as a slave, where I underwent, in fact, we would say, Gerut Abdet and Inui, the most acute invasion of my privacy and my being. Meanwhile, he's covered, he's made a bundle out of it, and now we have in chapter 16, the word that is found often in conjunction with the word kaved, and that's the word kal. And the point of Sarah's anger is clear. The point is, the dog look like, looks like its master. If she, if she treats me like a piece of dirt, it's because you treat me like a piece of dirt. That's the point of the story. That's the shivcha mitzrit. You think those things are forgotten, but they're not forgotten. It always goes back. We always we see the past in terms of the present. If I'm in a bad place now, we can read it back and often read it back into, into the past. When things go wrong, when did they start going wrong? When did your relationship start going wrong? And two years ago, after 20 years, started going wrong. But the truth is it was 10 years ago. The truth is you said 15 that years ago, the truth is the wedding night was a problem. And the truth is before that. That's the truth. So the point of the anger here, you see, is the cow. What she sees is, it's not, it didn't just happen one time. What she sees is that that situation is continuing. And hence the enormous anger. I wouldn't call this pettiness. I would call that he may have thought that happened in the past and is forgotten. But she hasn't forgotten. That's the point of the story. So therefore, if we ask ourselves the question, why is this not going to work? Okay. Why is the Ishmael, the hugger experiment not going to work? I think what the Chumash is after is everybody's going to be at fault of you. When something doesn't work out, it's not just one party. It's him. It's going to be her. It's going to be Hagar. And it's going to be Yishmael. He's a Mitzachek. And the family dynamic is not just any one person. There's a family dynamic at play here. And everybody will participate. At the end of the day, the experiment will fail, actually. Yishmael will not be Sarah's child. In fact, to a certain extent, it won't even be primarily Abraham's child. It is Abraham's child. It will be primarily Hubbard's child, as we shall see. Okay, now I take some comments. Yes, Sarah, do you want to say something? I you think you taught us the lesson that uh, it, it goes wrong the first time, 
on the first date already. Right, that is true. It goes back, usually you can read it back into the, that we, 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 we interpret our, our past in light of the present, you know? And there's a truth to it because these things don't disappear. As much as we want to overlook them as we want to move forward, it can also move us in a positive direction. When you have a crisis, it can move you in a positive direction because you're facing the reality. And the only way to resolve problems is to face reality. So mm -hmm. if you forget about the reality, you pretend otherwise, you're not gonna solve your problems. Um, you know, so there's a question how you deal with it. But my point over here is more about how we read the Chumash. The, the key point over here is the cow and Kaved. And by the way, just to make a simple point, the cow and Kaved is picked up in other parts of the Bible. For example, this book of Shmuel, the term cow and Kaved comes up several times in the book of Shmuel. The Shmuel book, a brilliant book, is constantly playing with Kal and Kaved, that each extreme, which is problematic, problematic. So the point is, here you have a link. What the Chumash is interested in here is linking up chapter 16 with chapter 15 and especially chapter 12. It's going to be an experiment that doesn't work but that the Rabbi, Rabbi language Andrew is thought? very striking here. Yes. Mm. Um, yes, who's it? Naomi? It's Naomi. It's Naomi. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing what you're saying, but even more literally. I mean, literally, Avraham sent her to have a sexual, sexual relationship with someone that she didn't want to, and he profited from it. Now Sarah's saying, now it's my turn. You go have a sexual relationship with someone you don't really want to, and I'm going to profit. I'm going to get a baby. Well, out. They're both going to profit from it. I think. Well, okay, right. And then, so then, I mean, she's she's doing to him exactly what he did to her, but it's not working out for her the way it worked out for him. Right. Well, you know, say it doesn't work out for anybody because the issue is the story of Abraham. Here's the point: it's the the Avram is supposed to. The, it's the, the book of Breshi is about building the family, basically. And his family now has a covenantal blessing, which has to be passed on in one form or another. And what the Chumash is interested in are the difficulties in transmitting the blessing. So <laughs> I want to emphasize, I never suggested that Avram wants Sarah to be taken. He doesn't want it to be taken. He's hoping she won't be taken. And the one who talks about this at length is the Ran. Rabbeinu Nisim in Drashot Taran talks about this. And he makes the point that, you know, his intention was to stall them. I'll be the brother, because the brother in the Bible often arranges the marriage, like we have with Rebecca and Lavan, the brother. And then, you know, when we're about, when the famine's about over, we'll catch the uh, midnight train out of, out of Egypt. And uh, that was his plan. The problem is, says the Ran, he didn't count on one small detail. You can do that with everybody in Egypt, but not with Pharaoh. If Pharaoh wants her, he's gonna grab her and there's nothing you can do. You have no negotiating position. So that was his mistake. But I, I agree with that in the sense, there's no intimation in the Chumash she wants her to be taken. But, in, but at the end of the day, she is taken. And that's the important point. It doesn't matter what his intention was. At the end of the day, he jeopardized her. He put her in this situation and she was taken. So we can understand her anger. It's one thing if it happened in the past and now she sees the same lack of respect. I wouldn't call this petty in any way. I completely understand it. Yes, Aviv. 
Um, I have two comments. One is uh, um, another reason that it's not petty. She's offering Hagar as a, um, so she can have a son. And chances are that when Hagar was taunting her, she was letting it be known that this would be Hagar's son and not Sarah's son. So it's the whole purpose of offering her Hagar. That's a very good point. This certainly is true with what you're saying. We'll see this. It's certainly that's the way it works out. At the end of the day, it's not, it's going to be Hagar's child and not Sarah's child. You're saying even here, there's already any kind of intimation that that's the case. Looks down upon her is just to say, this is my kid. You know, you, I, I, my child. And that's a very important point in the story. You want to add a second point as well? Second point is you said that the Shema Abraham Lekol Sarab, and you compared it to um, Adam listening to Eve. Because right. Adam listened to I, Eve. I didn't discuss that yet, but I, I simply pointed that because out. Because Adam listened to Eve, something bad happened. They were expelled and life was, well, because um, Abraham listens to Sarah, something bad will happen that Ishmael will not, you know, etc. So I wonder if there's that parallel as well by using the same word. No, I don't think that parallel because later on he's going to listen again to her and, and, and I wouldn't put it in terms of good and bad. I think, I think one of the points of these stories is they're incredibly nuanced and complex. Small story is a wonderful example of, of the, a tragic side to it. That there's negative consequences. Yeah, the negative consequences, like many things we do, there's positive and negative. The connection between, I just mentioned it briefly now and we'll pick it up maybe a different time. You know, the, uh, the language over here that Sarah, that Avram heard Sarah's voice, mm -hmm. if we see this not as a negative, because in theory it could have worked, perhaps. It might have, it doesn't work, but it could have worked. Um, and the listening to the voice of Sarah, which you have later on as well, is I think a positive. God says, listen to Sarah, obey what Sarah tells you. In chapter 21, we read this in Rosh Hashanah. So within the Medrash, there's the move to see Sarah, one might say as a kind of second Eve, that Sarah is a second Eve, kind of, you know. And what's interesting is, and the articles I've been getting have pointed out something very interesting that in the Christians actually, and especially in the Middle Ages, they began to develop a, a cult around, around Mary. And they saw Mary as a second Eve. Has anybody here seen this? It was a, uh, series on Netflix called The uh, Queen's Gambit. Anybody see The Queen's Gambit? Yeah. Okay, I read that book many, yeah. many years ago. I love the book. I love Tavis in general. I, I don't read many books, but I read this book. <laughs> and I said 30 years ago, they should make a, a movie out of this book. It's a great book. So anyway, in this book, I don't want to give away the movie, but there's a scene at the end, actually. The end of this uh, show, it's a bunch of TV, it's a seven part series. At the end of it, there's a scene where the, the heroine, the chess player, goes down to the basement. And she actually sees, she was taught to play chess by the janitor. And she goes down there and she finds a picture of herself as a, as a young child. If you remember in the show, there's, there, there, she's hearing this, it's a, it's a Catholic school or something, and she's hearing them singing. It's a very beautiful, it's a hymn. They hear a very famous Catholic hymn. 
Ave Maristella, I think it's called. It's a hymn to Mary. And in that hymn, actually, talks about the second Eve. So it struck me that actually, this, maybe this is my parish in the movie, that recapturing the innocence, for them, Mary represents the innocence. And she goes back with all her problems and she sees herself as a little child. And there's something about the innocence that she, that, 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 that's all, perhaps it's always there in us. We, we tend to forget it or we lose it or we lose sight of it. And the, so the idea of the argument of these pa various papers I've been getting, I, I don't read them that carefully, but is that in the Medrash actually, the Medrash sees Sarah that way actually, sees Sarah as a second Eve. That's a, it's certainly true that Abraham is the second Adam and that's what I've spoke about myself. He's the second Adam in the sense of he's the one who's going to rediscover the Garden of Eden, the sacred space. So perhaps one can read Sarah in that light as Abraham's partner. And I think that's a very interesting idea, but I think it was very powerful. I don't know if in the show that was intentional or not. Maybe that's my parish, but I think it's very, it's a very powerful idea that you is a piece of us. There's an innocence in us. In, in Hasidus, it's very emphasized. There's something in everybody that's that's untainted, that's innocent, and somehow we lose sight of that, and we try to get back to that. And often, I think if we've done, I think music helps actually, in my view. In music, something touches a different part of ourselves that we can reach in other ways. So. But this idea of seeing Sarah as a second Eve, which emerges, I think, from the Medrash, is very interesting. The truth is the Torah says very little about Sarah. And the story here is not a positive story. I mean, we understand her anger fully, but her, her response, I think, is very problematic. Let's we'll start with that. But uh, Rabbi? Yes. Yeah, it's Tova. I, yes. I like to ask you, why do you think it's Sarah who was subjected to so much Enoi? I mean, she's always the sufferer. Well, I think people, because why do I think it's the women who are taken? No, why, why is she in particular, this character, Sarah, she's always the subject of Enoi. I mean, right. everything I think because Right, I think because the point of the covenantal statement in chapter 15, your descendants will be strangers enslaved and oppressed, I think the point of the Chumash, which presents the gear first, you'll be strangers. Yeah. My understanding is because you're strangers, you'll be oppressed and you'll be uh, enslaved. And that is people who live on the margins. The poor, the people that are at greatest risk are people on the margins. On the margins means that you are other from a different place. Maybe you're a different religion or maybe you're different color skin, or any number of reasons, or you're someone who doesn't have power, or you're a woman who often have less power, and you're weaker, you're more vulnerable. And when you go to a place where you are vulnerable, those are the people that are going to uh, be, you know, are going to be in the greatest danger. So I think that's part of it. It's not always women. In the story of Joseph in the house of Mrs. Potiphar, he's the one that's vulnerable. Because she's the, she's the master's wife and he's a slave. But the fact is, he's a well-paid slave, but he's a slave. The fact is that he went, Avram chose to go to a bad place. He knows it's bad. He says straight out, the terrible people, if they think we're married, they'll kill me and take you. He knows it's a bad place. So I think it's about 
people who are vulnerable. And I think that's why her experience is one of Gerut Abdut and Inui, and the other person in this book who explicitly is the, is the object of Gerut Abdut and Inui is actually Yaakov when he goes off to Laban's house. There he suffers in his own language, Gerut Abdut and Inui. So it's about vulnerability, which is something very essential to the Chumash. The Chumash makes the point that when we have our own space, we shouldn't impose that on others. And that theme of that imposing it on others, we will encounter very shortly in chapter 16, because that's exactly what Sarah is going to do. She's going to impose what she suffered on somebody else, who may, who may not be the most righteous person in the world, Hagar, but nonetheless, you don't impose the Inui on the other. And that's what she's going to do. That's exactly the point of chapter 16. We know there's going to be Inui, obviously, because the first verse said this game with an Abdut. So the one that's missing is Inui. So there's going to be Inui. But, but we'll she, have to see what happens. But she's constantly in, in a position of suffering. Always. Why is she constantly in a position of suffering? She's a, that's true that she's taken in chapter 12. She's taken, she's in, taken chapter in chapter 12. But she doesn't have a child. Then, then when, when she tries to remedy the situation, she's in trouble. And I mean, right to the end of her life when, when she thinks that her son is being taken to be killed. Uh, she's that is true. The, the tr truth is that we don't know anything about Sarah's knowledge about her son being taken. That we uh, but, but even before, I mean, she right. is she is always in a position of the one who suffers. Well, I would answer you the following way. What I would say is that I would say that, for example, someone asked in the chat before, how come these women have children much later in life. Of the four matriarchs, three of them don't have children right away. The only one that does is Leah. And the Torah actually gives a reason. God saw she was hated, God opened her womb. And I think the idea of deferred blessing is part and parcel of the covenant. The, the question, why does she live a life of suffering? She does live a life of suffering. She doesn't live a life of suffering more than Jacob. Who, was, who has a life worse than Jacob? Think about his life. He... Uh, his beloved wife dies when he's young. He runs away from home. His father-in-law, uncle, cheats him. He comes back and his daughter gets raped. His one most favorite beloved son he loses at a very young age and doesn't rejoin with him to the very end of his life. He ends up in a land that he hates and begs his son and children to get him out of there. And when Pharaoh says, how old are you? He sums it all up. Not as old as you think. I've had a terrible life. Few and bad have been the years. Jacob is the hero of the book. Why is Jacob the hero of the book? Well, he's covenantal. That's why. Because that is the covenant. Whether we like it or not. I didn't write the book. I just try to understand it. The covenant is about suffering. It's about paying a price and an awesome price to set up a future for others. And those, those who receive the blessing and those who set it up have to be bound together. That's the ritual we call the Seder. That is what the Seder is about. It's about seeing ourselves as contiguous with and continuous with those who came before and those who will come after. Each one plays its part. Each part is necessary and not sufficient. So yes, Sarah is a covenantal person in the book. She has the deferred blessing. It only comes later. She is put in terrible situations. A lot of it happens to be her husband's fault, 
There's no question about that. Um, but at the end of the day, she is the one that represents the covenant. And the proof of the pudding is that the piece of land that represents our possession of the sacred space in Genesis happens to be Hebron. It's not a political statement. It's just a reality of the book. And that's Sarah's grave. Abraham's also buried there. But in the Chumash, it's her grave. So she's the one who represents the covenant. She's the one that Abraham mourns and cries for. And the other person that the people mourn and cry for is Jacob, the two covenantal figures. More than anybody, covenantal through their experience, I would say. So I think the response to Tova's point um, is, 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 is important because it's what this book is about, whether we, that is what it's about. And I remember many years ago, I was teaching this, I've been taught in a while, Breshit, but the, um, someone said in the class, someone said, one second, this is what this covenant is? Who would want such a covenant? And I said, you know, I've made this point maybe a hundred times in my life. You never, you never asked that question before. You've been with me for 20 years, you know? And so suddenly we recognize, like, wow, this is like, this is, this is something. This is, we understand why people would not want to buy into this blessing. Because what it entails is, is the commitment is, is, is tremendous. And so that is what Sarah represented through her experience. But unfortunately, it's not always the case that those who suffer don't impose the same suffering on others. The goal is of suffering, I presume, is to understand what it entails so we don't impose it on others. But very often the suffering embitters us and we do end up imposing it on others. And that's what happens in chapter 16, that the very Enoi is the Enoi that will be placed by Sarah upon Hagar. I'll have to stop here. My time is up. If you have any further questions, you can... Uh, I have a couple of minutes now where you can send me an email, dsilber at risha.org. I look forward to a very interesting set of sessions here. I mean, just trying to see what's here, but it's unbelievable. And uh, so look, thank you all for joining. I did want to mention that we have, as uh, Michael had said, many classes coming up. One in particular I want to emphasize, because it's a time of day where many people can't make it, we have a three-part series on post-scheme. Uh, tomorrow at, uh, I believe it's one o'clock New York time. Uh, I'm oh, sorry, Wednesday, not tomorrow. Wednesday at Wednesday, Wednesday, one o'clock. I have to check it, but it's got a series on the post scheme. And the first is given by Benny Brown, who's a very well known uh, professor at, uh, in Israel. It's about the Chazonish. It should be extremely interesting. And, uh, it's one of the many courses we're offering. It's all, you know, we have it on our website. Hope you can join us for many classes. Thank you very much. Have a good day.